I'm really hesitant to do this, but uh, so this is a picture from when I was in ninth grade. And so uh, this fall, uh, I will be attending uh, my 30th and a year high school reunion. It was postponed two years uh, because of the pandemic, so technically the 32nd. Uh, I'm a little bit anxious that I will just be remembered as that same ninth grader as I was in that photo. Um, that people will be, remember me for being that nerdy kid who was in all the AP classes. Or the rebellious kid who cut class with all the stoners, because I was part of that crowd. Or the geeky kid who collected comic books and Transformers even when I was in high school. <laughs> or the angry kid who was always hanging out with all the hardcore Asian kids. Some people saw me as a kind person, some people saw me as cruel, some people saw me as loud, some people never saw me at all, I was invisible to them. And I don't think anyone thought that I would become a pastor. But as we come to the finale of this series in the book of Nehemiah, it closes with a reflection about how Will he be remembered what your legacy is going to be before God? And so can we please shift to the next picture? We're in this series called Nehemiah, uh, Restore, where we're journeying through Nehemiah to learn how we experience restoration by returning to God to rebuild what's broken. And that when he does, he doesn't simply replace the broken parts with more fragile parts, but God builds something new, something better. It's a picture of the gospel and what Jesus does when he comes into our lives. And God gave Nehemiah a conviction for a suffering city in need of a savior to rebuild the physical and spiritual walls of their families and their communities together so that they would welcome people and worship God. And we saw, if you remember a few weeks ago in the beginning of chapter 13, Nehemiah, he is appalled that the people of God are forsaking the worship of God. They've replaced him with ungodly influences and presence, with their finances and busyness. They're choosing to worship in the, uh, the ways of the world instead of worshiping a God who has been faithful to his people, a God who has redeemed his people from captivity and restored them throughout all of history. And so as Nehemiah wraps up cleaning house, he's a little bit reflective. In between his actions, he's going to have these conversations with God, prayers about his legacy and how he will be remembered, how he's been faithful to love and serve God, not to earn God's love and forgiveness and acceptance, but in response to the faithfulness God has already shown him. And so the big idea this morning is that like him, we want to be remembered for our faithfulness in response to God's faithfulness, his faithfulness expressed to us in the restoration he brings in our lives. That just like the people of God back then, that he has set us free from the captivity of sin and death, that he's been faithful to us, he restores us to a new life, a better life, eternal life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the question that you want to be wrestling with this morning is, how will I be remembered? How will I respond to the grace shown to me through a faithful God? Turn in your Bibles if you will, to Nehemiah chapter 13, reading from verse 19. And if you don't have a Bible, there's plenty of them under your seats, uh, so you can grab one of those, or you can use a Bible app, doesn't matter to me either way, but we're going to pick up starting in verse 19 as we wrap up this book. 
As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and uh, guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. And here's his prayer. Remember this also in my favor, O God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So what's happening in here? Uh, Scripture commands God's people to worship him through a day of Sabbath rest. It's a way that God's people declare that God is so important, so worthy of honor, that we shut down our business and our busyness to take an entire day off to trust in the Lord, to rest in the Lord, to worship the Lord together. But as the fires of their faith start to cool, the Jewish people at this time, they lapse into complacency and compromise with the culture around them, prioritizing their productivity and their pleasures in place of God on their Sabbath rest. So what happens here is Nehemiah takes drastic action in verse 19. He orders that the gates of the city of Jerusalem would be shut on sundown before the Sabbath and stay closed the entire day till the day afterwards to prevent people from coming in and coming out to do their buying and selling and trading, uh, to distract them from their rest and their worship. But how many of you know that even if you set guidelines and boundaries for yourself, that temptation and rationalization to stray away from God's ways, it doesn't just go away. And so that's what happens to the people in verses 20 and 21. The people, they obey the letter of the law because the gates are shut, but not the spirit of it. In other words, instead of going home to prepare themselves for a time of rest and spiritual renewal, people are camping outside the gates of the city. They're eager and ready to sell their wares at first light. I want you to think of it this way. It's like being somebody who promises that you're going to be fully present during your family vacation, and you're carrying around your laptop so that you can work like in between any break in the activities and get things done. So Nehemiah has strong words for the people there, why are you camping here? You see a campground sign? This, you are not doing work, but you're still worshiping it. You're making your performance and your paycheck, your priority over honoring and obeying God. And if you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And it means the exact same thing as it does today. He's going to lay a beat down on these guys. And so they, don't, they, stop, they quit doing that, right? And so what happens here is that in Verse 22, Nehemiah organizes the Levitical church staff to go guard the gates, to have the people keep the Sabbath day holy. That means to be set apart for God. And then he prays, remember my faithfulness, God, according to, in other words, in light of your steadfast love, your faithfulness, that I, would, that I pursued worshiping you above any other interests on the Sabbath day. And so like him, you and I want to be remembered by God for worshiping him faithfully as our highest priority. It's not about just taking a day off for God. The issue is priority. Does he come first? Do I worship him by giving him the first fruits 
of my attention and my devotion, my time and space to be renewed by him? Or do I tend to rationalize my need to fill up my margins, catching up on work, catching up on chores, cramming as much fun or as much experience as I can in my free time, on my day off, because if we're honest with ourselves, we honor and worship those things in place of God on our Sabbath. Author Lillian Guild and her husband were driving down the road uh, one afternoon, and they noticed this uh, one morning, they noticed this Cadillac that was sitting on the side of the road, hood up. The driver would, appeared perplexed and agitated, like trying to figure out what's going on. And so they pulled over to offer assistance, and then the stranded driver kind of sheepishly kind of confessed to them uh, he knew when he had left home that he was low on gas. But in his hurry to get to his very important meeting, he didn't take time off to fill the tank. Now, fortunately, the guides had a spare emergency gallon of fuel, and so they generously shared that, told the man that there's a gas station just a few miles down the road. He thanked them profusely and took off, sped off down the road. About 12 miles later, same car, same driver, at the side of the road, even more agitated, stranded there. He was extremely grateful when the guides pulled over once again. And you guessed it, he was in such a hurry for his very important meeting that he didn't bother stopping for gas, and his tank was empty again. Many of us are so busy pressing on to the next responsibility, the next activity, the next ministry, that we do not pause to refuel. And the Bible warns us that you may be in danger. Now, you may not be truly a follower of Jesus because Jesus is your real rest, the real fuel for your soul. And that by taking a Sabbath, it's proclaiming that my activities and productivities and my pleasure, pleasures are not Lord, but that Jesus is. So, if we sat down with God to review our lives thus far, would you be remembered for being faithful in worshiping God? Not just showing up on a Sunday morning at church. Not just singing a few songs. Is Jesus honored as your first priority in your time, in your intentions, in your attention, in your motivations? Or is Jesus just a priority, one that you give some of the leftovers of your resources to? Now, the flip side is, what are some things that we don't want to be remembered for? Verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Remember those? Those are the, the people who were excluded from uh, the gathering of worship because of their idolatry. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. This guy's hardcore. <laughs> Praise be to God for his grace that we don't do that to each other. And I made them take oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin 
Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? I know that sounds very racist. We'll explain what's going on in just a moment, okay? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the, uh, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Whew, Nehemiah is bringing some fire. All right, so you might remember, for those of you who have been journeying with us, back in chapter 10, verse 30, that the people of God renewed a vow uh, to obey scriptures, and specifically one that they promised to God in obedience to his word, not to give their sons and daughters in marriage to people from other cultures that don't worship God. Okay, so the issue isn't about being a foreigner. And in fact, in the New Testament, there's a similar command for God's people in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, that we would not be yoked with someone who doesn't love and live for Jesus the way that you do. Well, that still sounds very racist and rejecting to me, Pastor Josh. Why, is that, why is that, are there commands like that? And we see in this passage in verse 23 and 24 that in their homes at that time where different cultures and faiths were mixing together, that they started raising their kids unable to understand the Hebrew language. And here's why that's important. Because that was the only language at that time that the Bible was recorded in. And so what that means is their children were growing up unable to hear God's word, unable to read God's word, unable to understand God's word when it was being read to them, effectively killing any possibility of faith or relationship with God. And so in verse 25 through 27, we see Nehemiah bust some heads, and then he reminds the people, even our ancient king Solomon, who was beloved and blessed with wisdom by God, he was unable to resist compromising. In 1 Kings chapter 11, way back uh, hundreds of years earlier, Solomon wanted to be just like the pagan kings in the surrounding nations around them that he wanted to have multiple wives, uh, many of them who worshipped other gods. And then he joined them. He started to raise altars to idols and demons and lead, led the nation of Israel away from God. And in fact, it got, because of his sins, uh, it kept getting successively worse throughout generations. And so Nehemiah's people, repeating the same mistakes, uh, they were the, their generation had to pay for it through the consequences, conquest, and being exiled in Babylon. You can trace a direct line all the way back to that issue. And so the issue here is not about rejecting foreigners. It's about rejecting God, rejecting his wisdom, his ways, his worship, his righteousness in our lives. And Nehemiah's people are repeating that same mistake as Solomon, absorbing and assimilating idolatrous influence through intermarriage. And it's their families and their faith that suffer for it. And in fact, in verse 28, to make matters worse, the high priest, who's kind of like the senior pastor over the entire nation of, of Judah, he allowed his son to marry the daughter of Sanballat. You guys remember that guy? Nah, you don't remember. He was part of that gang of non-Jewish officials who kept showing up throughout Nehemiah to oppose the work and the worship of God. And so Nehemiah's like, it doesn't matter if you're the senior pastor's kid. If you're going to set a sinful example, I'm going to kick you out of, of the, the gathering of God's people. Verse 29, Nehemiah prays again. Remember the unfaithfulness of even the priests, even the high priest, who allowed 
ungodly influence and intermarriage to turn the hearts of people and families away from God. And so the lesson here is we don't want to be remembered for compromising on the worship of God in your family through whom you allow to marry. When the Bible says about being equally yoked, it means making sure that that other person loves Jesus, worships Jesus the way you do, that both of you are reading the Bible, that both of you like to pray together, that both of you share God's values and vision for your life, for your family, for your future. It means that if you're a parent, that you uh, make sure that you raise your kids to love, serve, and live for Jesus, and you never hand them off to someone who doesn't. Well, that sounds very insulting and exclusive, Pastor Josh. I would argue that it's actually more loving and lasting. Because I want you to think about it in terms of this. How can you share in the most intimate human relationship, but you can't share this most important relationship? If your relationship with Jesus is your greatest priority, but you can't share that with the person that you have the most intimate relationship with. How can you tell someone that Jesus is your greatest treasure when you're actively living in disobedience to him? I would argue that there's nothing more loving and lasting than pointing people to Jesus as your priority and authority, as your Savior and Lord, as your greatest fulfillment and joy. Let me put it to you this way. My son, Indy, my older son, uh, he's nine years old, and he uh, went to this birthday party last weekend for one of his classmates, this wonderful, this cute little girl from his class. And uh, I was driving him uh, to his martial arts, and we were having this in-depth conversation in the car. He was telling me all about his friend, that she's funny and that she's kind, and they play foursquare and wall ball together. And I, and I kind of was ribbing him a little bit. Uh, son, why are we having this conversation? Is she your girlfriend? And he's like, ew, no. You know, <laughs> he's nine. But, Daddy, I've been telling her that I'm a Christian and I follow Jesus. And she says she believes in God, but I'm not sure. Could we give her a Bible? And so we started brainstorming together which one would be an appropriate one for somebody who's not a believer, who is at, at this age. And I want to tell you, my son has such a good heart. I'm so proud of him because he has the order of his priorities straight in his heart. You're a great girl. I like playing with you. I can't date you right now, but I want you to know Jesus first. <laughs> and so I want to counsel to you not to pursue physical or emotional entanglement with anyone who doesn't love Jesus if you do. Because I want you to think about how much confusion and conflict happens in marriage or raising your children when one person loves Jesus, the other one doesn't. When one person values praying, the other one doesn't. When one person wants to worship at church, and the other one doesn't. When for one person, Jesus is their highest priority or that they appeal to the Bible as their final authority, and the other one doesn't. All the other intimacy that we can experience in relationships are good, but they are secondary to a spiritual connection in a covenant before God. One last thing. Let's look at how this book of Nehemiah closes. Verse 30. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times, and for the first fruits, remember me, O oh my God, for good. This book closes with Nehemiah summing up all that he has done in service to God. It sounds like he's bragging a little bit. He's not. 
but he's just talking with God, kind of, you know, when you have that kind of reflective conversation with someone talking through your day. And so here he is at the close of this series, at the close of this book, talking about, Lord, uh, you know that I've served you by getting rid of all this ungodly influence that has replaced you in our, amongst our people. I've restored the serving and giving to God. I've been restoring the prioritizing and praising of God. But I want you to notice that he's not just talking about his own restoration and relationship with the Lord. He's asking to be remembered for all the ways that he's participated in God's restoration for others, that I protected others from ungodly influence. I've raised others to serve God. I've led others to worship God. I've given generously to God by to buy, uh, my example and instruction so that others would do the same. And so the very final thing on his mind is that he wants to be remembered for being faithfully involved in God's restoration for other people. And so like Nehemiah, we don't just praise God for his work in our lives. We also participate in his work in others' lives. That genuine faith isn't only concerned about me and my family and my future, but it reflects Jesus and what he loves a life that's lived outward to the glory of God and to the good of others. Like the city and people of Jerusalem throughout the book of Nehemiah, there are many people in our world, in our day, who are experiencing broken walls, broken lives in this season. Some of you sitting here this morning. People who've lost their jobs, their homes, their health, their hope. We've seen increasing divisiveness in politics, in friendships, where people don't express any humility or empathy or repentance. During shelter in place, there's been a sharp rise in divorce over the last two years, a rise in domestic abuse, child abuse, substance abuse. More than 7,000 churches in the United States closed their doors for good, more than double the number of years past as cities grow dimmer without the light of the gospel. I read an article that talked about interviewing or polling pastors that over 30% of current pastors currently serving in a church said they were seriously considering stepping away from full-time ministry permanently. And in the midst of all these problems and all this suffering, the temptation is for us to turn inward because we feel overwhelmed by our own needs or the scope of other people's needs. But I think about Nehemiah and how his eyes weren't just focused on his own restoration, but as he experienced restoration, as it overflowed onto other people. It reminds me of, actually, our growth group uh, Bible study team leaders. Uh, we have a team for our growth groups that all they do is prepare the Bible studies. And, uh, for, and people have all different kinds of opinions about it, but one of the things I'm most proud of them about is I know that each of them, there's three people on that team, they picked books like Ecclesiastes, things you would never study on your own, right? Um, one of them picked Colossians. One of them picked Psalm 23 for a study. And, and not just simply because picking random books of the Bible, but because of what they were, their own struggles and what God is doing in their lives as they experience restoration. And they want to share that. It starts to overflow. And we've seen that be a tremendous blessing in other people's lives. As we saw yesterday, that, that, in, that Psalm 23 was a huge blessing to Susanna and Kelvin. And so I want to challenge you. Whatever brokenness you've experienced in this season, as God does his restoration work in your heart, in your life, what if it's meant to be passed on for the restoration of other people? 
What if you started small, maybe this week, just asking God to open your eyes to pray for one person or situation in need of restoration and ask God, how can what you've been doing in me bless other people like Nehemiah does so that you're pointing their eyes to their ultimate restoration in Jesus? I would love for you to be remembered for that. Because frankly, too many people who claim to be followers of Jesus are just sitting on the sidelines. We're consumers that take in more information, gets, getting spiritually fat, but we never exercise the restoration God has put in us into other people's lives. And so it pains me because I see so many, a handful of volunteers who give so much, stretched thin, burnt out, when all of us should be participating in the restoration of our world around us. What will you be remembered for? That you focused on your own life and your own family? Or were you an agent of God's restoration for the city, for the church, for our community? This next picture is a picture of my good friend, Dr. Steve Korch. Many of you know him. Uh, he's more than just a professor or a guest speaker. His friendship and mentorship over the years have meant the world to me. He passed away last year, January 2021, as many of you know, from a stroke. But his family was unable to hold a memorial service until just a few weeks ago. And so uh, we were invited, my family and I were invited to a small gathering at their home for some of their close friends and family. And people were sharing what they most remembered about Steve, what they most treasured about him. That he was this wonderful and wise pastor and husband and friend and father and grandfather. I took a few people aside and just had conversations with them about how Pastor Steve performed my ordination. He performed my wedding. He was there to welcome the birth of my son, Indy. He was there to welcome the birth of my daughter, Violet. He supported me through uncharted territory and difficult seasons of ministry. I miss him, and I love him, and I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude for his influence on my life and my faith my ministry. But most of all, I will remember his example of faith. Not because he was perfect, but specifically because he wasn't. Early on in his ministry, he shared with me a, a season where he stumbled and that it would have been very easy for him to give up and let that be his spiritual legacy. But he decided to look past the circumstances, to cling to the cross, to trust that the God of grace and second chances really does forgive and restore people. And so the story of his life puts skin on that redemption story for broken and messed up people like me. So that when I get knocked down or when I fall down, I remember his example to persevere in trusting the reality of God's presence, the certainty of God's promises, and to participate in the restoration of others. And I wonder, how will you respond? What will you be remembered for? Like Nehemiah, will you be remembered for your faithfulness to God in response to his faithfulness to you and his restoration in us? You may worship him, but it's not just with your lips, I hopefully with your life. with your priorities, with your family, with your ministry to a broken world around you. Nehemiah is 
an amazing story of a man who was not a pastor, but whose heart breaks for the things of God. And he was given by God a vision for people to experience restoration by returning to God to rebuild what was broken, literally in the city and spiritually in people's lives. Not simply to replace it, but for God to come in and build something new, something better. Isn't that the gospel? That Jesus comes into our lives, and as we turn back to him, we can bring him our sinfulness and our brokenness. And then as we trust in his death and his resurrection and his promises, he rebuilds us, he redeems us, he restores us to something new, something better, something lasting, something eternal by faith in him, the God of restoration. So may you turn to him today, experience his goodness, May it restore and renew your soul. And as it does, I hope that you will not put a plug in that faucet, but allow it to overflow into restoration in the lives of many others. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the word that you have brought to us. It is personal and powerful. And so many of us, so many of us, including myself, have been living and doing things our own way. with our time and our energy, instead of resting and worshiping you, allowing you to be our highest priority, we go our own way. We won't serve you because we want to go our own way. We won't give to you because we want to go our own way. Help us, God. Change us that we might be remembered for worshiping you faithfully as our highest priority. And there are times that we only think that faith is a personal, private thing about me and not guarding the faith of our family. Help us, God, to lead our families to see you as the high, highest priority, to worship you, even when it comes to the closest relationships in this human life. God, help us to look outwards beyond ourselves and our families to the world around us that is hurting and suffering. We know that there are times we need to sit and rest at your feet, allow you to restore us. And as you do, there are times that you call us to the next season of overflowing into others' lives. Give us the courage. Give us the power. Give us the conviction to do so. And we praise you, God of restoration, God of hope, for everything that you've given us, everything that you are, everything that you do through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.